I, so I have the White House um, like fact sheet up about the American jobs plan. And this is how I do too much online shopping. When you the tab minimizes it, it looks like the old Navy logo. <laughs> so I keep thinking that I some for some reason have old Navy open on my work laptop, but nope, it's just the White House. <laughs> Pandemic problems. <laughs> I 100% did not notice that before. <laughs> That's amazing though. This episode of Talking Underwater is brought to you by Central Life Sciences. Protect your facility from midge and filter flies with Strike. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Del Cello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water Mice Digest. And in this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will briefly provide some background on how the recently announced American Jobs Plan may impact the water sector before diving into two industry expert interviews on the proposed plan and the legislative landscape. Finally, our interviews this month are with Nathan Ole, CEO for the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, also known as RCAP, and Shelly Chard, Water Quality Division Director for the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality. Ole and Chard testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works March 17th, highlighting the need for investment in water and infrastructure. Both represent different facets of the water industry, yet stress the need for collaboration. But first, we'll provide some brief context ahead of today's interviews. On March 31st, U.S. President Joe Biden announced a new infrastructure package, the American Jobs Plan, which is including um, $111 billion for water infrastructure investments, a few highlights on the drinking water side. The plan would provide $45 billion for drinking water investment, including 100% lead service line replacement through investment in EPA's drinking water SRF and wind grants. It also aims to provide Western drought relief by investing in water efficiency and recycling programs. And on the stormwater side of things, the plan highlights the need to make our infrastructure more resilient stating, quote, building back better requires that the investments in this historic plan make our infrastructure more resilient in the face of increasingly severe floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and other risks, end quote. It would also provide $56 billion in grants and low-cost flexible loans to states, tribes, territories, and disadvantaged communities to modernize aging drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater systems. That funding line also includes clean water state revolving loans. And in terms of wastewater, the plan would provide $10 billion in funding to monitor and remediate PFAS and to invest in rural water systems and household well and wastewater systems. You can check our show notes in the links on our websites to get some additional information and some more in-depth coverage on all things regarding water, wastewater, and stormwater in the American Jobs Plan. We've covered a roundtable with the EPA and some utility leaders, as well as some industry association responses to the American Jobs Plan. 
Absolutely, yes, thank you. So now um, we've got a jam-packed episode full of great interviews from industry experts for you today. So we'll let them do the talking. Our first interview is with Nathan Ole. He's the CEO for the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, also known as RCAP. I spoke with Ole about the unique challenges that rural and tribal communities face regarding water access, equity, and affordability what progress has been made, and how we as an industry can be champions for change. Hope you enjoy the interview, and now on to that conversation. Welcome to Talking Underwater. I'm Lauren Delcello, Managing Editor for WQP and co-host of Talking Underwater. I am joined today by Nathan Ole, who is the CEO for the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, or RCAP. Nathan had the opportunity to testify before the U.S. Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works on March 17th, and pretty amazingly, a lot has happened in the water world since then, like the American Jobs Plan and additional EPA state revolving funds funding, to name just a few. So thank you for taking some time to speak with me today, Nathan. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on the show, and I know you are a seasoned podcast pro as well, so I'm looking forward to our chat and digging (laughs) in. (laughs) There's, I mean, like I said, there's been a lot going on, so we have a ton to cover, but first, for those listeners who are unfamiliar, can you just give me a little bit of background on RCAP's mission and the why behind the need for providing a voice and resource for rural and trial communities in water? Of course. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to be with you. It's it's always exciting to be talking about these issues, and obviously yes. it's been very busy uh, over the last few weeks. But RCAP, uh, as you said before, is the Rural Community Assistance Partnership. We're actually a national network of nonprofit partners. Uh, our focus is on building capacity at the local level in communities uh, across the country. We have six regional partners, and through those regional partners, more than 300 what we call technical assistance providers folks that are living and working in rural and tribal communities across the country every single day. We work on issues from access to safe drinking water or sanitary wastewater to economic development and entrepreneurship to disaster recovery, all with the focus of building capacity locally. Uh, And through that work, through those 300 technical assistance providers, last year alone we reached a little over 3.4 million folks in rural and tribal areas, about a Mm. third of which came from communities of color, and about a third of which came from really highly economically distressed communities as well. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge that's a huge network to to reach and I'm sure you're growing as well as these issues continue to get public awareness in addition. We are obviously COVID itself has exacerbated a lot of the issues that that many of us know and see every single day in rural and tribal areas, which means there's more work to do. Um and our fundamental focus on capacity building means that we're there to work alongside communities across a number of issues they might be confronting with the hope and goal of allowing them to take those issues on in the long term, create sustainable and resilient areas uh, that also allow for economic growth and prosperity for the people that live in those areas. Yeah. So I definitely do want to circle back to COVID and the pandemic, but for a baseline first as well, what are some of the unique challenges that rural and tribal communities face regarding water access, equity, and affordability? I think a lot of our listeners who live in urban areas or utilize source water may be surprised by the breadth of these vital issues. 
Yeah, so it's really a unique situation for small communities. When you look at the drinking water sector, there's approximately 150,000 public water uh, services across the country. 97% of those cover communities of 10,000 or less. Mm -hmm. And on the wastewater side, uh, it's about 15,000 and about 72% cover communities of 10,000 or less. And so you've got these really complex issues that communities of all sizes are dealing with, but in the water sector, it predominantly hits rural areas when you're talking about systems, not population in total, but systems itself. And so whether you've got a regulatory environment they're trying to deal with, uh, probably even more importantly, the financial side of how do you sustain a system, ensure that it continues to provide safe drinking water, but also that you have the, the financial flexibility and needs both to address the current issues you might be confronting, but also to have reserves in place. So if an emergency happens or a pandemic happens, that you've got the financial reserves in place to sustain that system, even through difficult situations. And the affordability issue is really critical in that conversation because in yeah. many cases, these systems are taking on loan dollars for infrastructure, uh, which means they're paying debt service as opposed to grants from the federal resources. And so that debt service really falls upon the, the ratepayers. And in small communities, that means you're, you're putting debt service on a smaller component of a community to take those services on and, and continue to make sure they're affordable for the people in those communities to, to have those services continue. Yeah, so that statistic that you cited, the number of drinking water and wastewater systems served by small communities, can you can you repeat that to stress that for listeners, please? I think that's just absolutely key. Yeah, there's 100, approximately 150,000 public water systems across the United States. 97% of those yeah. 150,000 systems cover communities of 10,000 or less. That is wild, and I think we don't always realize that because uh, finding the stories and these voices of these communities isn't always as loud as the communities of city water systems. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of what we believe is one of our fundamental goals mm -hmm. is to help raise the voice of these communities, to help showcase not just the challenges they're confronting, but also the innovation that's happening in those communities and the yeah. solutions and opportunities that that provides for the people that live in those communities. Yeah. So you were talking about the financial element earlier, and I imagine the pandemic has had a pretty severe impact on that as well. So how has the pandemic exacerbated some of these issues that you're bringing up? So there's a couple of ways that that has happened. First is the most obvious, and that is loss of revenue for systems. Uh, we mm -hmm. went back in, in May of last year to survey really small systems. And you know, for, for our survey, the average size of the community was right around 2,300 residents, so really small communities. We were able to estimate through the, the surveys that we got back that there would be approximately 3.6 to $5.5 billion revenue loss over the course of a year if things continued the way that they were happening last May. So that by itself is just straight revenue loss, you know, whether it's businesses or families that aren't able to pay, which means right. the systems are taking on those revenue losses, utilizing reserves they might have, um, but the fundamental way that these systems typically get federal dollars is through infrastructure projects. And those infrastructure projects go towards new or upgrading infrastructure, which means that they can't go towards the revenue loss, the operations and maintenance costs that they've undergone to continue to provide service, even with those revenue losses coming in on a month-to-month -month basis. And so not only does it confront them with a significant revenue hit, but it also mm -hmm. makes us think about how do we better align 
federal resources to help those systems undergo and, and sustain those revenue losses while still providing the safe drinking water they are to residents, ensuring not just access but affordability, but also really taking into consideration equity issues in communities that have, even before COVID, uh, been dealing with these access and affordability issues. Yeah, that's a good point that these these issues, they're not new. They've been around. Correct. Absolutely. So on a little more current events side as well, I mentioned in the intro that you were recently a part of that EPW hearing. So what were some of RCAP's priorities going into that? And since then, too, what progress has been made and, and shortcomings as well are you seeing? So the hearing was was obviously a, a wonderful opportunity for us mm -hmm. to raise the voice of those communities that we talked about before. Going into the hearing, you know, our priorities have always been, uh, you know, really twofold. Number one, to try and provide more funding for communities. And for us, typically that means grant funding that we're advocating for, that we're trying to help really small, really distressed communities access federal funding, but funding that is also sustainable for them. And so pushing for both funding through the, the state revolving funds, but also the USDA uh, programs, that wasn't obviously a, a really significant part of the hearing because it was mostly focused on EPA programs. But mm -hmm. understanding where SRF funds can provide forgivable loans or other incentives to try and help really distressed communities access uh, funding. But then more importantly for us is the technical assistance that needs to accompany that. So we provide technical assistance. There are a number of other organizations across the country that are doing the same thing that work with systems uh, from our perspective, from a technical, managerial, and financial. So we help deal with, with issues that are technical in nature and helping operators understand how to, how to better operate their system or deal with an issue that they're seeing in their system. Mm -hmm. We work with water boards, water districts, city councils, mayors to, to understand the managerial aspects of the system and, and their responsibilities there. And we also help communities with the financial aspects of both securing funding, uh, but also how to better manage those funds, how to understand what rates they need to be charging to sustain the system, et cetera. And so without those technical assistance programs, many of the most distressed and small communities, whether you're rural or tribal, have a difficult time accessing federal resources. And so that technical assistance goes a long way in both building capacity for those communities to continue to access those resources, but also as a resource directly for those communities to help with applications or understanding funding opportunities that are coming out. Yeah. On the financial side of that, there's there's w one sentence that you said towards the end of your, your testimony that was really kind of shocking, and that was comparing that we have assistant programs for low-income Americans for food, shelter, heat, and health care, but no such programs for water. And when I heard that, it when when you compare it in that way, it really does shake you. Yeah, it's it's something I think all of us in many ways that have access and affordable access take it for granted, right? The, you, you go to your tap, you turn it on, and water flows. Or you go to turn on the shower, and the water flows, and everything's fine. But especially in a moment like this with, with COVID, where you have so many families that have, have had to go on deferment plans with utilities, and you know utilities have been fantastic about uh, not just granting those deferreds, but, but making sure there's a moratorium on shutoffs. But at some point in time, those bills are going to come due. Those bills are still there for those families, even when they you know, haven't had to pay them for six months or nine months or maybe even a year at this point in time. But at some point in time, those bills are going to come due. And so the affordability program that we've been pushing for and others have been pushing for is really to help address that issue, that once those moratoriums are lifted, 
families are going to be confronted with hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars of bills. And if they weren't able to pay it over the last six months, you know, the chances of them being able to pay a large bill like that now are really difficult. And so using programs that already exist, like energy programs, for example, and using that model to think about how do we provide those same type of resources for families that really need it the most on the water side is has been a big focus of ours and certainly a key opportunity as we think about new programs and new funding that's coming coming across, whether it's through, you know, the CARES Act and other COVID-related programs, the Recovery Act, uh, and the Jobs Act that, that is just being discussed now. Um, we've been successful in getting a pilot program for this, and now our goal is obviously to make it sustained and, and a full-time program because these issues, as we said before, were prevalent, not obviously in the same scope and range that they are now from COVID, but it still was an issue even before COVID. And so ensuring that we've got a long-term sustained program from a water perspective that aligns with those other basic human needs that everyone knows they need uh, is really an important aspect of our work. Yeah, absolutely. So my last question for you today, Nathan, we touched a little bit earlier on the role of storytelling and sharing innovation and making sure that these these conversations are heard. But moving forward, how can we as an industry be champions for change? So I think there's a couple things that, that everyone needs to do. Uh, first and foremost, the storytelling is such a critical component. I, I think, you know, the COVID survey we did, to me, the most impactful piece of that survey was actually a question that we we didn't even think was a big part of the survey in the in the first place. And that was, we asked simply how many staff systems we're, we're operating with. And 43% of those that responded said they're operating with a single full-time operator or less. Meaning that if that operator got sick, that community would not have anyone that could actually service and operate the system, which obviously puts a huge health impact onto the community. And, and those kinds of pieces yeah. of data that also lead directly to a story that are easy for people to understand and see and see that the direct impact are really critical. So I think everyone thinking about how do they tell stories that really resonate with people and hit home, bring the issues directly to the doorstep of, of every individual you're talking to is really important. The second piece I think is, is even more critical is we've got to be willing as an industry to collaborate and advocate for one another. I think we've often, you know, felt at times that our one issue is the most important issue. And while it certainly is, it's also important to be coming to the table of, of other organizations and being willing to advocate on their behalf for their issues as well. I think it both spurs collaboration and more opportunity, but it also shows that we collectively as a water industry are in it together. And there's a need for us to collectively advocate for a number of issues. Uh, some of them can be broad and some can be specific, but being willing to think outside of your own space and understand that the impact in another area may also have a positive impact on what you're focused on is a really important aspect that gets lost, especially as we talk about policy, but even more importantly, the work that's happening on the ground. And so the more collaboration we can we can facilitate, uh, the more collaborative spirit we can bring together collectively as a, as a water sector, uh, I think the better we all will end up being. You can't see, but when you started talking about collaboration, this huge smile lit up my face because it's overlooked a lot. It, we do tend to operate in our in our verticals sometimes and and not notice that together we might just be a little bit stronger. Absolutely, it's it's such a critical piece, 
And whether we're talking water, whether we're talking economic development or broadband or housing or any issue that confronts communities, it's it's something that we don't do enough of. And within the water sector in particular, we don't do enough collaborating. I think there's certainly a, a huge opportunity for more, but you know we've all got to be willing to step outside of our own comfort zone in some ways and think about the impact we can help make on other organizations and other pieces of the water sector that, that raise everyone together. Absolutely, absolutely, and what a great positive note to end on. Thank you for your time today, Nathan. I so appreciate your insight and the opportunity to learn from you. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you. so much for that interview, Nathan. It was incredibly enlightening, and I appreciate your time and expertise with our audience. Now, Bob, if you want to bring us into the next interview. Yeah, I spoke with Shelly Charge. She's the Water Quality Division Director for the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality. Much like Nathan, she also testified for the Senate EPW Committee on Water Infrastructure. I spoke with Shard about the current climate of legislation in Washington regarding the water industry, some of the key talking points that she and others are discussing with congressional leaders, and how industry professionals can better communicate the industry's needs to Congress people as well so we can get more voices telling them what we need. So here's our interview now. So Shelly, thank you so much for being on our call today. We appreciate you taking the time. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to get to talk to people about things that I'm super passionate about in the water and wastewater industry. Yeah. Well, we had lined up to talk with you about infrastructure and legislation and the climate in Washington before we even knew about the infrastructure bill. Things have obviously changed a lot. Could you talk a little bit about the the climate in Washington, how that's kind of shifted over the, even just the past three months? Well, you know, water and wastewater infrastructure is kind of that forgotten piece. Um, when you say infrastructure to people, immediately we start talking about roads and bridges and we all see it, we all experience it every day, whether we're walking, driving, biking. Uh, but water and wastewater infrastructure sometimes just gets lumped in and kind of pushed aside. And because of what we've seen happen the last few years uh, with things like uh, the crisis in Flint, Michigan, uh, with uh, lead in the drinking water, and then we've had issues um, with uh, cyanotoxins from hazardous algal blooms in drinking water reservoirs or facilities. Uh, so people have started paying a little more attention. And then if you um, take into account everything that has happened uh, with the uh, winter storms this year, um, in February, we saw so many people um, with very, very cold temperatures, no water, no electricity. Uh, it was really a crisis that uh, no one had been paying attention. We've been building up to this and water pipes are out of sight, out of mind. So we've had all of these things happen in a short period of time. And that really got everyone talking. Um, we have these uh, pipes that have been in the ground well past their useful life. And oh, well, they're still working. So it's fine. Well, we figured out they really work. And for the first time in a long time, we really had Congress um, engaging with regulatory agencies and with water and wastewater utilities because they were hearing from their constituents or they were at home with no water, no power. 
that were where experiencing a water and wastewater infrastructure failure. Um, you know, we talk in terms of public health and making sure we're really reaching those typically underserved communities or disadvantaged communities. Sometimes those are our inner cities. Sometimes those are our rural communities. And we've kind of had just a whole series of perfect storms that have brought us to a point that we're really hearing a lot from Congress in saying, maybe we need to look at this particular kind of infrastructure and really um, bolster its abilities. Um, how does water and wastewater infrastructure protect public health? What is the impact on the economy? And that's a piece of it that a lot of times um, we also don't talk about. It's when companies are coming in and they're going to expand or they're going to open a new facility, they start out with, is there land available? And then it's, do we have adequate water, either for drinking water or for processed water in the facility? Do we have adequate wastewater handling to deal with the domestic wastewater that's generated or the industrial wastewater that's generated? What does the recreational aspects of this area look like? Can people fish? Can they picnic by a scenic water body? Uh, so all of these things uh, kind of all have come together and we're really hearing a lot more from the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives and the federal agencies, not just the EPA, but also the Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, uh, because that plays such an important role um, in their programs as well. I mean, water's life. Without water, <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, truly, truly. Um, I, I know that you, you have, you, you testified to the Senate EPW committee about the importance of water infrastructure recently. Um, what, what are, what do you see as kind of the three biggest priorities that, that water industry leaders are pushing toward Congress and telling them about to really drive the points home? Yeah, and some of that is going to depend um, on where you are in the country. Are you an area that's experiencing drought or experiencing flooding? So that can, you know, kind of shape what is your top priority. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I think all of the water and wastewater industry are saying things like, we need significant investment into water and wastewater infrastructure, pipes, plants, other uh, kind of unusual or new or innovative approaches, uh, constructed wetlands, maybe we're using pervious pavers, we're funding rain barrels, different ways that we can deal with our water and wastewater. But we've got to have uh, that financial investment without a doubt. And I think one key piece that sometimes gets forgotten, and that is our workforce. We really need substantial workforce training. Uh, technology is changing so quickly. We need our existing workforce to learn these new treatment techniques, to think differently about the same old processes. But we also need to do something to help recruit new people into this industry. It's not flashy, it's not shiny, but we have to have water and wastewater operators. 
Um, and I think it was a great thing that we saw um, in the pandemic is that finally these water and wastewater operators were getting recognized as essential workers uh, for vaccine prioritization and things along those lines uh, because they keep our plants running and hard to wash your hands if you don't have clean water to wash your hands. Uh, so I think that workforce development uh, training is super important. Um, another aspect that I would throw out that I would definitely put that kind of the top tier on my list, um, we can't just throw money at things. Uh, we've talked about with our children, if they're getting bad grades or getting into trouble at school, we don't just throw money at them. They have to have all the necessary supplies and the teachers needed all the necessary supplies. But we also start thinking, what else can I do? And our water and wastewater treatment and our infrastructure is no different. If we can provide appropriate, necessary technical assistance, whether that come from uh, what you would think of as a regulatory agency, a college or university, um, a VOTEC, it may be, you know, any number of technical assistance providers that are out there, if they can come in, have the funding to be one-on-one -on -one with a system or a handful of systems in the same area that are facing the same challenges, that technical assistance can go a long way uh, in improving compliance with regulations and improving uh, public health. Um, and extending the life of that very expensive infrastructure. So those would kind of be my three big things if I were picking. That makes a lot of sense. I've not thought about the technical assistance aspect, but when you when now that you mention it, I do think you know you can't just give people equipment and expect it to work. You got to make sure they know how to operate it, they know how to optimize it, they know how to do all these other pieces that ensure that the operations aspect of it isn't so costly that it's no longer optimal. Absolutely. And can I cheat and give you a fourth one? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So my fourth one that I would put on that list um, would be um, research uh, for oh. new technologies. And, you know, sometimes we hear, well, we've already have technology that will treat for that contaminant, or we already have technology to take care of that. But oftentimes we have technology that works for really large systems, mm -hmm. but we may not have it for those more rural, smaller systems. And that's something that's really important is that we figure out how to have treatment technology that is an economy of scale that works, not only from a treatment perspective, a cost perspective, and an operational perspective. Uh, so that one kind of ties in <laughs> all yeah. of the other three. Uh, so that's why I think it's really important that we keep that in mind as well, that we can't just say problem solve, check the box and move on because we have one option. Uh, when you have a state like mine in Oklahoma, we're very rural, we're spread out all over the place. The nearest big city might be 20 to 30 miles away, and that big city is 2,500 population. Um, that looks very different than being in a large metropolitan area where you have lots of customers and lots of ability to find workers and to train them. Um, so we just have to keep an open mind about really the whole gamut of uh, potential water treaters, wastewater treaters, and those operators.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, the scale is very important for water, especially in the U.S., because of just how disparate that scale can get. So that do that does make a lot of sense too. You need to be able to scale the process down, not necessarily scale it up. <laughs> right. You've got to be able to treat drinking water and wastewater for New York City, but you also have to be able to do it for Calumet, Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, how are you and other leaders trying to change, update, and improve options and opportunities for the financing options that are out there? Obviously, like the SRFs are really, really big, clean water and drinking water there. Uh, it sounds like the uh, WIN, the Water Innovation Act uh, it, thing is also a big part of Biden's infrastructure plan. What are some of the things that you guys are trying to really emphasize with with congressional leaders on that? Well, you know, there is definitely a need to continue to fund um, those programs that already exist, whether it be the SRFs, that revolving fund loan and grant programs, but we also have uh, loan and grant programs through the U.S. Department of Agriculture Rural Development, and that really focuses on uh, smaller communities, about 3,300 or smaller uh, that are more rural. Uh, we also have opportunities uh, through the Department of Energy. They have some water energy nexus funding for research and grants. Um, you know, all of those are really important, and we want to keep all of that involved and a part of um, the options that are out there. All the tools in the toolbox. Well, yes, we need a bigger toolbox, and we need more tools. Um, so how do we do that? So when we look at those funding programs and we occasionally see new grant programs that are created or new loan programs that are for a very specific purpose, you know, we've seen that uh, with some of the sanitary sewer overflow, CSO, wet weather type um, loan and grant programs, or um, there's been a lot of talk about should we create stormwater state revolving fund uh, loan and grant program so that it's very clear that stormwater is important. It has its own dedicated funding. Uh, you know, so those are some kind of big things that may be a national congressional type uh, activity, but we also see the states uh, looking at their own set of circumstances, the type of non-compliance, the type of health violations, the type of economic development, the type of weather affected water systems. Is it flooding? Is it drought? Is it both? Is it both the same month? Um, which that's a whole other story that we can talk about another time. Uh, but that definitely happens. And we have to figure out how do we fund these programs for all of these different types of systems? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to, to get some get your feedback also to give our listeners some information on how they can also communicate better with congressional leaders. What are like some of the messaging strategies and communication strategies that you've used to, to communicate the needs of water, the water industry? And how can industry professionals take that forward and also be champions for change? Okay, so first, I'm going to make a plug for Water Week. <laughs> Um, is coming up. It's the week of April 26th. Um, so anybody who is uh, in the water sector or interested in water at all uh, should pay attention to lots of opportunities that are coming um, for just some of it, just general information and members of Congress and uh, EPA leaders 
you know, letting everyone know what their priorities are, what they're working on. And if you're well informed in knowing what the political leaders are thinking and what their priorities are, you can tailor your own message um, to be most impactful, um, to pick up on their key issues and how they relate to what you feel strongly about or what you're trying to do for your part of the world. Um, so I think that's a big thing. There are a lot of uh, individual membership type organizations that focus on water and as well as uh, organizational memberships um, where people can plug in and be involved. So for me personally, I'm a part of both the water and wastewater uh, sectors and operator training. So I like to pay attention to all of those national organizations in what they're doing you know, through uh, the Water Environment Federation as an individual, but then as the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, where I am part of my state membership. So that gives us a lot of opportunity and people can really um, go online and find a lot of advocacy tools. Um, there is a group called the Water Advocates. Um, that's a group the Water Environment Federation has on their webpage. They upload letters or uh, kind of templates where you can find what is my issue and what are some communication strategies? Here you go. Um, so there are some things like that that are really helpful that allow people um, to actually um, engage with their congressional members. Uh, some of the basic things, though, if you don't know who your congressional member is, you know, election wasn't that long ago. We've had some change over, but you know, people can go out and look at those um, state websites or the federal websites and find the listing for their congressman, their representative, their senator on the state or federal level. And most of them do have not only their Washington, D.C. office, but also a state office. And those state staff, uh, they're in very close contact with their federal counterpart, their, the other half of their office, but it's much easier to pick up the phone and call your state legislative director versus calling the United States Capitol and navigating that process. Yeah, yeah. And one thing to add to that, too, is have have your friends and your colleagues also do the same, because the more right. voices that do that, <laughs> the more it does seem like a big problem and it needs to be solved. So the getting that volume of voices is a very critical part of that process, too. Absolutely. And, you know, you hear it from one person. OK, we made a note of it why have I gotten three or five or seven calls about this in the last week or month? Uh, it is very important. And, uh, you know, sometimes we like to think, well, it's a really important issue. You shouldn't need people beating the door down. But sometimes that's what it takes. You know, it's kind of that squeaky wheel routine. You know, that's mm -hmm. what gets your attention. That's what you want to address. Yeah, yeah. Well, the last question is a little bit broader and probably very large in <laughs> scope, but uh, how can we create a more unified message industry-wide on this type of thing? What what things need to kind of come together to make that that a possibility? Yeah, so, yes, yeah, it's very broad. And it's big, it's ambitious. It's huge. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think 
you know, one response is, well, that depends. You know, what is it that, you know, we're really trying to convey? Um, when we look at the water sector and water infrastructure, there are so many pieces of that. Are we talking about drinking water? Are we talking about sanitary wastewater? Are we talking about industrial wastewater? Is it stormwater, water reuse? education, training, operations, construction, and all of a sudden we get down this rabbit hole and we're going all these different directions. But at the end of the day, what do we care about? Protection of public health. We care about having the funding to protect public health. We're talking about the importance of water and water treatment in our economy without water we don't do much yeah, um, or anything at all including breathe <laughs> yeah. yeah you need water to grow stuff including humans you need water for the food you need water for manufacturing you need water for energy so there's so many different pieces of that but at the end of the day the message has to be we have to take care of our water if we don't what are we going to have left? Uh, so I think it's really important to find a unified message at a really high level. Mm -hmm. And then as we talk about, it's important to fund infrastructure. It's important to have appropriate regulatory standards and to implement and enforce those regulatory standards so that we can protect mm -hmm. public health. It's important to have all of these things, but we keep talking about it in those big, broad terms, and then we can talk about, and in Oklahoma, drought resilience is really important. Mm -hmm. In Florida, saltwater intrusion into fresh groundwater is important. And then we can kind of just start breaking it down. But since so much of this industry, uh, our scientists and engineers, we want to start out in the weeds and then get into the muck under the weeds and just keep going deeper and deeper. And we have to remember, we've got to pull ourselves out of that and really take a higher level view of the world where that we are talking about safe water for drinking, safe water for food production, safe water for swimming, for fishing, recreation, whatever it is. And really it's a very simple message. Protect our water. Got to start at the top of the funnel. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Shelly. We appreciate your time. Well, it's been great being here with you. I enjoy it. Yeah, thanks so much, Shelly. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I know that you're pretty busy. And um, after talking to the Senate EPW committee, I know that you had a lot on your plate after that. So thank you so much for giving us that time and everything. But uh, Laura, do you want to uh, start with our first housekeeping item? Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. So uh, first, we just want to do a little brief look ahead. We're very excited about something we have in the works for you all. All three brands, water quality products, water waste digest, and stormwater solutions are currently surveying our audiences regarding industry attitudes towards live event attendance. We will report on the findings on the respective brand websites and then discuss the overlap here 
on the podcast. So if you are interested in sharing your thoughts on industry event attendance, please email talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com and we will direct you to the appropriate survey for your facet of the industry. And also, as we've been saying for the past several episodes, the Scranton Gillette Communications Water Group, which includes Water and Waste Digest and Stormwater Solutions, is bringing a water pavilion to the Utility Expo from September 28th to 30th, 2021 at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. We are seeking abstracts for our educational track there, so you can send them to us. Please do so. You can do that by visiting bit.ly slash water pavilion abstracts. Make sure you capitalize each of those words or use the link in our show notes to do so. And finally, SWS, WWD, and WQP are partnering once again with Global Waterworks to bring you a webinar series. The third and final part of this new series will take place April 27th at 1 p.m. Central Time, and we'll discuss smart strategies for facilities to ensure the health and safety of tenants and the continuity of operations. You can register now at bit.ly slash GWW series three. And uh, finally, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at TUW Podcast. That wraps up our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Be well, listening people. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs>